We live in the freest country the world has ever seen. And the wealthiest, at least in terms of individual prosperity. And the most powerful, at least for now. And the saddest. We are a nation of increasingly sad and disappointed people who are facing a growing crisis of loneliness. So this week I listened to a TED talk that was given this past July by a guy called David Brooks. He's a political and cultural commentator and he writes for the New York Times. And his TED talk is called The Lies Our Culture Tells Us About What Matters. <coughs> and it's a really fascinating talk. It's not Christian, but David Brooks shares his own personal journey of pain and loneliness and his discovery of some really very profound Christian truth about the soul and about love and about what really matters. I recommend the talk. Um, and toward the beginning of his talk, he reports the current statistics on loneliness in this country. He reports that 35% of Americans over age 45 are chronically lonely. More than 90% of men over 65 have not a single friend other than their spouse. And only 8% of Americans today report having any meaningful conversations with their own neighbors. So we live in what's rapidly becoming the loneliest culture on earth. And if you don't feel lonely right now, then it's probably coming. Um, because the problem gets worse as we get older. And uh, not to be too dismal about all this, but we do need to look at it honestly. Um, and in his talk, Brooks connects the dots between this increase in loneliness and our increasing rates of depression and despair. And he reports that the suicide rate in this country has risen 30% since 1999. Wow. And in that same period, the teen suicide rate has risen 70%. Loneliness is now being widely recognized as a national crisis. And the US Health Organization published an article in January this year entitled The Loneliness Epidemic. So when I got into this business of full-time ministry and church planting in particular, I thought, hey, we have an answer to this. The world has a need that the church can meet because we have in our toolbox all the tools that are needed to build community. And community is the answer to loneliness, right? Well, yes, right. I still think that. Uh, but two things have become clearer to me in five years of doing this job and in one week of meditating on 1 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. And those two things are first, that the American church is not nearly as good at community as it should be. And the second is that there is no other answer to the American problem of loneliness than the church. We are it. And so I'm going to do today is explain to you how I came to those two conclusions and what they mean for the way we live. They both come from what Paul says about truth. So please open your Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to start, chapter 3, verse 14. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul starts, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the first thing that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14, is that life doesn't always go to plan, right? 
He says, I hope to come to you soon. And by that he means, I'm going to do it with all haste and with all urgency. But then he gives Timothy plan B for what happens if he's delayed. And it's really nice to know that Paul felt out of control of his schedule too. Um, and this also worked out very well for us that he felt out of control because now we have his plan in writing. Uh, Paul's blueprint for the church got written down in this letter rather than being communicated in person and lost forever. And may all of our calendar failures have such a happy outcome. <laughs> so when we look at it, his plan, if you look at uh, verse 15, is about how to behave in church, right? That's what Paul says, verse 15. He says, if I delay, then the most important thing is that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. All right, so the message today is that you guys really need to know, learn how to behave in church. <laughs> um, I'm kidding, of course. That's not what Paul means. Uh, when he says behave, he means much more than being polite. He means the whole way of life, uh, whole life practice. And when he says in church, he doesn't just mean in the Sunday morning meeting. Uh, he means every day of the week, living like we belong in the family of God. And why does he want to encourage that? Because at the end of verse 15, that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. All right, that's an amazingly powerful and profound thing to say. A pillar and a buttress, they're both architectural features, and what they do is hold up the roof. So Paul says, in the world, the church is designed to hold up the roof of truth. If the church crumbles, how will truth be held up in the world? The world would still have the Bible, sure. But who would understand the Bible without watching people who knew it and were putting it into practice? The church holds up truth <coughs> in the world. And friends, we are the church. So truth is preserved and upheld in the world by John and Michelle and Daniel and others like you. And that's the whole plan. God's truth is safeguarded by nothing more secure or less secure than his people, of whom the people in this room are a typical sample. So we are a community that is formed by truth and for truth. The glue that holds us together is the truth that we share. And I've come to realize that without truth, there is no fellowship, no community, and no answer to the loneliness epidemic of our culture. So we're going to talk today about truth. And the truth that unites us is in verse 16. It's what we know about Jesus, the song that we just sung. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to sing the hymn that we just taught the children. And Paul didn't invent that hymn. What he's doing here is writing down a song of the early church that Timothy would have already known. Or maybe it was an early creed. Um, and what I want to do in a minute is dig into that more with you. But before we do that, I want to start with what Paul says at the beginning of verse 16. Great indeed we confess. Um, this is one of those passages of scripture where the English translations are all over the map on what they say. Because it's some pretty difficult Greek to translate. Uh, Paul uses a word that's not used anywhere else in the whole Bible. It's the Greek word homologumenos. One of your favourite Greek words, I know. Um, and then after that, he adds the word mega. And the Greek word mega means mega. No. It means great. So he says, homologumenos mega. And what does it mean? So homo means the same. 
Logu comes from logos, which means word. And if you put that together, it might mean a confession or a creed, the same word, a common word. Um, but this word is actually much bigger than that, because in other Greek writers, like Plato, it means much more. What it means is a fact that is uncontestable, undeniable, established by the common consent of everyone, without doubt and without controversy. Homologumenos. And Paul takes that idea, already very big idea, and he adds mega to the end. Right? So what he's saying in verse 16 is that the mystery of godliness is established on earth beyond reasonable doubt. It's the truth. These six things. That Jesus was manifested in the flesh. So that means that he was God and that he was incarnated. Uh, and he showed the true face of God to the world. Second, that he was vindicated by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God sided with Jesus. He witnessed to his authority, he agreed with him, and he supported him. And the, the Holy Spirit witnessed to Jesus at his baptism, when the Spirit came down upon him. Uh, that happened again all, in all the ways that Scripture and prophecy attested to the truth of Jesus. And then most visibly, probably the thing that this uh, sentence is most pointing to, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit most powerfully when he was raised from the dead. Third, he was seen by angels. It's a fascinating little line, because isn't everybody seen by angels? <laughs> but Jesus was seen by angels in a most particular way. Angels predicted his birth, and then on the day he was born, they sung about him. Uh, they witnessed to him on the day that he rose. And today, the angels that surround the throne of God in heaven look on the human face of Jesus. So he was seen by angels. Fourth, he was proclaimed among the nations. And we know that began in earnest on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, and it has continued unremittingly ever since. The church has not yet reached every tribe and language on the earth, but it's working very hard, and it won't be long, maybe even within this century. Think of all the effort that goes into proclaiming this message and the human cost. What news could still be inspiring that kind of effort 2,000 years later? Fifth, Jesus was believed on in the world. People believe Jesus and they put their trust in him, even today, even in cultures radically different from his. So the message isn't just being transmitted, but it's also being received, amazingly received. It's exploding right now throughout the world, especially in the Muslim world. And more people convert to Christianity every single day than in any other religion in the world. And finally, Jesus was taken up in glory. That means he ascended into heaven. He was lifted up from the earth and his disciples watched him go. So these lines Paul quotes in verse 16 are all about Jesus. They're unique to Jesus. And Paul says they're irrefutable. These things define the Christian faith. So we can't reject any of these six things and still call ourselves Christian. And if you're here this morning and you don't call yourself a Christian, then I ask you to please listen when Paul, who met Jesus for himself, says that these things about him are true and undeniable. I challenge you that no meaningful historical objection has been made to any of these things. 
I want you to test your hearts on this. Do you hold any serious doubt about any of these six points? And if so, can you honestly say that you've investigated the point for yourself, looked into the evidence, talked to people who believe it, and thought it through? If not, we will happily and humbly do that with you. And if you still say yes, I still doubt, then can you honestly say that your doubt is a rational conclusion and not merely a personal preference? A preference that you'd rather the truth were different than it is, or that you simply find it too much of a stretch to believe? Because, friends, that is not rational. That is making yourself the arbiter of truth. And if God is big enough to be God, then we would expect his revelation of himself to blow our circuits. It would be suspicious if it didn't. <laughs> so verse 16 is true. If any of these things could be seriously challenged, the church would not still be here after 2,000 years. It's far too hard to be a Christian, and there are no other advantages. Uh, people wouldn't still be dying instead of denying Jesus, or leaving their homes and risking their lives to take this message to countries of the world where you can be killed for even mentioning the name of Jesus. And so if you find Paul convincing here, and you decide that you actually do agree with him, then come be a Christian. Because this is our whole faith, and it's a wonderful faith. These are really wonderful things to believe. So look at them again. All six of them are about life. This is a message of life. God was made alive in the flesh. He was raised to life by the Spirit. He was seen alive by the angels. He was preached as living to the world. He was believed in by those people who were receiving life. And he was received in glory, where he now prepares eternal life for us. It's a message of life, life, life. And this message, it lifts up the lowly and it humbles the great. Because it's a gift. And no one on earth is good enough to earn it. And no one on earth is too bad to receive it. It's also a message that's for everyone. It belongs equally to all nations, to men and women, to rich and poor, to educated and to uneducated. It was not originally given to white, middle-class English men. But nevertheless, here I am. It has allowed me in. And so what we find is that the overwhelming goodness of God in sending Jesus erases all of our differences. And it provides the only safe place on earth for real community. The only one. There is no community without truth. And the only place on earth where you won't be lonely is in this truth. So it makes perfect sense that the devil would attack this truth with all of his biggest guns. So we're going to move on now to chapter 4. Paul says that some people don't believe this truth, and he was seeing in his time that some people were also starting off believing it, and then they were giving up on it. And why is this the case? The simple answer is due to a collusion of demons and hypocrites. That might sound very fierce, but I'm just trying to be faithful to what Paul says. So chapter 4 verse 1 says that the Spirit expressly says 
That's emphatic. The Holy Spirit <coughs> of God has said this in no uncertain terms, that in later times, by which Paul means right now, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. That's a terrifying verse. Uh, so, in verse 2, that word insincerity, the insincerity of liars, that word insincerity is the Greek word hypocrisi, which we could also just transliterate hypocrisy. It means people who preach one thing and practice another. People whose lives don't match their message. They say, do as I say, not as I do. Paul says that hypocrites are the mouthpieces of demons to spread lies in the world. He says that the demons have no mouthpiece without the hypocrites, and the hypocrites have no message without the demons. So they need one another, and that's why I call it a collusion. Human hypocrites can't come up with these lies by themselves because the lies are clever, appealing, full of cunning, and subtle enough to fly under the radar. So they're engineered by demons for the destruction of men. And we must not be so arrogant as to think that we would, not, that we would spot them easily or that alarm bells would go off right away. They probably wouldn't. And that's why good, honest, sincere people fall into their traps all the time. So we remember here that Timothy was a bishop. A bishop! And Paul still felt the need to remind him in verse 16 to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So let's not any of us think that we're immune from these distracting lies. And not surprisingly, when these lies work, their effect is to break down community. When truth breaks down, community breaks down. Theological divisions in the church always lead to fracture, and we can't afford any more fracture. So let's learn to recognize the patterns of the lies. And here in this chapter, we're given three reliable tells, three tripwires for the alarm system. Um, these are, first, the lies deny one or more of the six statements in verse 16. Second, they are taught by hypocrites who don't live up to their own standard. And third, they always bear the fruit of death. So the gospel is life, 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 and the lies are death, death, death. So we'll look at Paul's examples and then think about a couple of modern examples. Paul's examples here are people forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods in verse 3. And what Paul had in mind here are church leaders who were borrowing ideas from Greek Gnosticism and Stoicism. So Gnosticism said body bad, spirit good. It forbade marriage. And Stoicism said the body's evil and has to be denied. And it had strict dietary laws. And Paul contradicts both of these on the basis of scripture. They're wrong because their practice is founded on false ideas of God and his world, so they have no place in the church. And they trip all three of the alarm wires, because first, the idea that the body is evil contradicts the first truth of verse 16, that Jesus himself came in the flesh. Second, Paul says that the people who teach them are hypocrites. They don't live up to their own standard. And third, they bear the fruit of death because forbidding marriage and denying food robs life. 
Now, as we look at these things, I should be careful to add that Paul did not have the Catholic or the Baptist churches in mind when he gave these examples. <laughs> so, you probably know that the Catholic Church forbids the marriage of its priests, but this idea has a biblical foundation from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in order that they might be focused on the things of God. And whether or not we agree with them, we recognize that they do it for the sake of Jesus, and that the Catholic Church could not be more supportive of marriage in its lay members. The Baptist Church, you probably know, forbids the consumption of alcohol. But again, this is an idea that comes from an attempt at biblical faithfulness, of not causing a weaker brother to stumble, as Paul says in Romans chapter 14. So it's motivated by the truth and not by a denial of the truth. So neither of these practices are the reasons for division in the church. And neither of them is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. Paul's words in verse 3 may not be weaponized against fellow believers. Instead, we should pay attention to where they are in play today, which is in cults and false religions. So here's one example. I was in school up in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, and I lived uh, a few blocks from the site of Old Economy Village, uh, the former home of the Harmony Society. And that was a Christian cult that forbade marriage in all of its members, thereby denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And unsurprisingly, it quickly died out. <laughs> um, the cult leader didn't keep his own rules. He was allowed to marry as many wives as he wanted. Obvious hypocrisy. And the result was death to them all. And this example could be repeated many times over. How many times have cults ended up in mass suicide or been broken up by the authorities when they became murderous? The truth brings life. All the lies bring death. So there are many examples I could tell you, uh, close to home and inside the church, but I want to mention a big one that's further away. I want to speak clearly about Islam, because it's now the fastest growing religion in Texas. Do you know that? Yeah. Bizarrely, Islam took a big boost in US membership and conversions after 9-11. And uh, if you listen to the radio or watch TV, such a lot of rubbish has been put out in the media about how it's a religion of peace and how it's another valid way of worshipping the same God. But I'm sure you can see for yourselves that Islam utterly denies all six points of the truth in verse 16. It denies that Jesus was God in the flesh because it says that Allah has no son. It explicitly denies in the Quran that Jesus was resurrected and thereby negates the witness of the angels. It ignores the testimony of the church and the pervasive, persuasive power of the message of Jesus and it denies that Jesus ascended into glory. Six for six. Now, I would be murdered in two dozen countries for saying this and maybe soon it will be illegal here too. But Muhammad was a hypocrite. He preached a message about the holiness and justice of God, and he lived a life of murder and debauchery. Muhammad had 15 wives and four concubines, and these four were all sex slaves who he kidnapped from towns that his army had slaughtered. And like founder, like followers, Islam's presence in the world today brings death. It is a religion of death. 
It has spread through the world by military conquest. It subjugates people, kidnaps and enslaves people, murders its dissenters, and turns every country it gets hold of into a living death camp. So can there be any doubt that it was created by demons for the ruin of men? But as American Christianity fails to present a faith worth dying for, or a community worth living for, Americans all around us are turning to Islam. So then, am I saying that every religion and faith system in the world that is not apostolic Christianity is a lie invented by demons and spread by hypocrites? No, I'm not saying that. Paul is saying that. And the Holy Spirit says that. And the day the church stops saying that is the day that it stops being the pillar of truth that God intended it to be. There are not multiple roads up the mountain. In fact, there aren't any roads up the mountain at all. There's one hot air balloon called Jesus that can carry you to the top, and that is it. And we stand together on this truth, or we can all die of loneliness. Now, just because we're right and every other religion is wrong doesn't make us better. Please, let's not be arrogant. We're all hypocrites in our hearts, aren't we? And all of us would have settled for some sweet enslaving lie if God hadn't saved us and printed his truth in us. It's all of grace. So can we hate anyone who is still a slave to the demons? Should we be mean to our Muslim neighbour or give them the cold shoulder? No! How can we do that if we remember how nearly we stood in their shoes? We weep for the people who are ensnared in Islam and all the other religions of death. And we love them, even if they hate us. And we seek their good, though it cost us our lives. And we rejoice with great joy when a single one turns away from Muhammad to follow Jesus. So we love them as hard as we can, while also disagreeing as hard as we can with what they believe. Because there's no wiggle room in the truth. It's unchangeable and it's undeniable. And if we disown Jesus, he will disown us. Jesus came for everyone. The gospel is for everyone, for people of other religions too. Paul writes in verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. So salvation is open to everyone, but the gift isn't effective until it's received. So my wife Sarah was at a faculty dinner for Gordon Conwell Seminary, and uh, one of the other faculty members told this story uh, about a time when he was golfing with his Jewish friend. And it was just the two of them. Uh, and they were alone together out in the middle of the golf course. And his Jewish friend asked him, Do you seriously expect me to believe that if I don't put my faith in Jesus, then I'll go to hell? And Sarah's colleague confessed that he didn't feel at all prepared for that question. Um, but it was one of the few moments in his life when the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him the answer. And he heard himself saying to his friend, well, let me ask you a question. 
Do you seriously expect me to believe that if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became a man, <coughs> that that would be irrelevant to anybody in the world? And that's such a good answer. <laughs> and of course the answer is no, it's not at all irrelevant to anyone. It's very, very relevant to all of our friends and families who are losing their interest in life because of loneliness. So, you want to cure your loneliness? I'm utterly convinced that we have in our hands the only cure. It's the community of the church. But in order for this to be effective, we have to rigorously believe and speak and practice the truth. There's no community at all outside of the church. There's only tribalism. Insiders and outsiders. My tribe against your tribe. And David Brooks says that tribalism is just fake community for lonely narcissists. And there's no community inside the church if we won't stand firm on the truth. And that means much more than just knowing it. It means practicing it and living it. Otherwise, we're just another bunch of hypocrites. And the world has enough of those. Paul is primarily interested here in how the disciples of Jesus behave in the church. Not just what we believe. We need to show the world by our godliness that we have received a gospel worth living for. Gospel worth dying for. So to all of us then, I give the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy in verse 15. He said, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen.